since, you know, you're talking about middle-aged women, have these conversations with your daughters, your sisters, your grandchildren, especially as certain rights are being stripped away. And, you know, even as you mentioned in Canada with trans people, have these this open dialogue. We need to continue the conversation. Women need to continue to be educated about their bodies, about the reproductive system, about their health and their health care. Continue to have these conversations. Don't let these things be taboo. You know, I know when I was growing up, we barely talked about periods. And so those basic things, even menopause, you know, we didn't really talk about menopause until recently. And, and even so, it's still not so mainstream. So have these conversations and make sure that you have access to resources that are giving you the correct information. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer women. Are we wise women? Are we mavens? Are we crones? Hell yeah. And we're also still curious fun-loving, interesting, the list goes on. This podcast is for you. My guests are folk who have a message for our demographic. And if you want to hear a specific message, let me know and I'll find the guests. This podcast is also a conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. I try and let my guests have the greater say, and usually we fit in a good laugh or two. Listen in now to today's guest. As women, especially by the time we reach our 50s, 60s, and beyond, we have probably been dismissed or our concerns downplayed by the medical system. I rarely go to the doctor, so when I finally went a number of years ago because I felt so crappy with flu, and I was mocked by a doctor, I remember sitting in my car and just crying because, as I say, I need to feel really sick before I seek medical help. And that was only the flu. Others of you, and my guests today, can share stories with much more serious outcomes. In Amanda's case, she was undiagnosed for decades. Once diagnosed, though, she didn't go for coffee with her friends and get angry. Well, maybe she did that, too. She started to dig more deeply into the whole issue of undiagnoses and dismissals. Amanda Layden, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about this topic, although I wish we didn't have to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting how, you know, like I'm almost 70 and the story hasn't changed in the last you know, 50 years that I've been aware of. So before we get started, I do want to explain that my neighbor has decided literally two minutes ago that this is a good time to get his leaf blower out. So listeners, I do apologize. Amanda, would you share your own personal journey through decades? Like that's crazy. Yeah. That alone is crazy of not being accurately diagnosed. Sure. So really my issues started probably when I was 16 and that was the age I first got my period. And I was somebody who really, really, really suffered with bad periods, you know, debil de de oh my gosh, I can't say that word today, debilitating periods. <laughs> it's one of those mornings. Um, and, you know, my symptoms, so my symptoms were every month I would, you know, kind of be in the field position, be doubled over, have serious pain, be vomiting, 
And my symptoms were masked for a number of years because doctors put me on the birth control pill. And now fast forward several years, and I had been complaining to doctors about my period, you know, anytime I would see a doctor asking, you know, is there something you can do? Can you test me for something? This doesn't feel normal. You mean every single woman is having her period who gets a period and is doubled over in pain, is bleeding through her clothes, is vomiting every month, is planning her schedule around her period. And they would just say, no, you just have bad periods. You just have bad periods. You just have bad periods. And so fast forward several years and my ex and I are trying to get pregnant and I do get pregnant a few times, miscarry each time. And the final kind of miscarriage, the big one, I'll say the, where I ended up uh, in the hospital, my doctor at the time, we were going through rounds of IVF because uh, we were having problems getting pregnant, not because I didn't have enough eggs and his sperm was bad. You know, we were told we would be fine having a baby or being able to get pregnant it was that final miscarriage where the doctor said, wait a second, you've been complaining for years about your period. Your uterus is bigger than it should be for how far along you are in terms of your pregnancy. And you just had a blood clot at the top of your uterus. Something is wrong. And she said, I think you have something called adenomyosis. Now, adenomyosis is a cousin of endometriosis and they often run together. They run in a couple or a pair. But it had been probably 20 years that I had been seeing doctors saying, I think something's wrong. Like, I can sense this. I feel this. This just doesn't feel normal. And then going through rounds of IVF, my periods were getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's because IVF is like putting water on weeds when it comes to adeno and endo. And finally, after that miscarriage and her kind of putting these few things together, I went to see a specialist and the specialist said, you know, your adenomyosis is diffused, meaning it's everywhere in your uterus and you're never going to be able to carry a baby to full term. So ultimately, I ended up having to have a partial hysterectomy because that's the cure for adenomyosis and endometriosis. And um, yeah, you know, it cost me my ability to have children. It almost killed me at one point because the adeno was so bad. It was growing through other parts of my body. My uterus was so big that I was an emergent case. They had to get it out before it burst. And so it really, really, really uh, caused a lot of suffering emotionally and physically. But that's, I mean, that's the crux of my story. You know, like I'm significantly older than you. And my one thought was, you know, like at, at 16, even at 20, that's just not a matter of your personal comfort or discomfort. That is going to affect every bit of your life. And in my day, employers would just say, you can't do the job. You can't show up every month. Yeah. You're, you're out the door. And, yeah. you know, it, it's it's huge. Now, I, I must admit, I had to look up adenomyosis. Is that correct? Yeah. Some people say adeno. Some people say adeno. I say adeno. Um, and you're not the only one, it, you know, as a lay person or, you know, even a woman, nobody's talking about these diseases, even endometriosis. You know, it's people know more about endometriosis than they do about adenomyosis. Even doctors, gynecologists don't know what it is. My doctor who said, I think you have this thing called adenomyosis. She's an IVF doctor. And so she sees you know, people, fertility patients all the time. She didn't really know much about it. She just knew there was this disease out there, but she, and she kind of knew the presenting symptoms, but she didn't know really what it was. Now I was lucky at the time I was living in Boston 
And they're just so happened to be one of the top specialists of adenomyosis in the world who practices in Boston. And so I was lucky enough to get into his practice, but you know, a lot of people just don't know what it is. And when I've started to share my story, more and more women are coming forward to me saying, wait a second, I have that as well. Or they're saying, wait, those are my symptoms too. Do you think I might have this now? Had they actually diagnosed me sooner, there are some things they can do to help clean the uterus out to make it more hospitable. And I use that in, I'm kind of saying that term in quotes because I, I sort of, dislike how they use certain terminology when it comes to women's anatomy, when it comes to women's fertility, when it comes to our ability to have children. But what I would say is that if you have any of these symptoms like I had and, you know, vomiting every month, you're bent over and debilitating pain, you know, for me, I own my own small business. So I was lucky enough when I, around the time when we were going through IVF and I was having these really horrible periods and my adeno was coming back fiercely, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to plan my schedule around my period, but no woman should have to do that ever. And, you know, it got me thinking about, well, what about everybody else? What about women who are standing on the, you know, factory line or in manufacturing and they're experiencing adenomyosis or endometriosis? How do they come off the line? You know, how do they come off the the line every month to tend to their periods? Like, you know, it can be very embarrassing. Some of the things we have to go through in my case, every month I was literally bleeding through my clothes. So, you know, could you imagine if you're, and I stand up sometimes in front of groups and give talks or do training. And there were times where I just couldn't manage my schedule. So I would be standing up in front of a group and be like, Oh no, like, did I just bleed through my clothes in front of this group of men that I'm delivering this talk to, you know, there's just certain things where, People don't know enough about these diseases. And I guess back to your point, there's just not enough research on women's diseases. And as I mentioned, the only cure right now for adeno and endo is to remove your uterus. And that also infuriates me because it's like, well, if this were a man's disease and a man had to do deal with this, do you think that the only cure would be like, like, let's just say it's a disease in their penis, like, oh, we're just going to remove that body part. Absolutely not. Like there would be some other form of research, some other cure. Now, I'm not dismissing the doctors and the researchers out there who are starting to look at these diseases and, and why they exist. There's uh, one company I know here in the States, they're based out of Austin, Texas, that are doing research on early cells and how the cells are actually the, the cells for endometriosis and how they actually, and I'm not going to use the right terminology because I'm not a scientist, but uh, how they actually transform and present themselves like cancer cells. And they're trying to figure out a vaccine so that when women actually get diagnosed with endometriosis, they get a vaccine and they can live a quality of life. So that's amazing. And I honor them for doing that work. But yeah, I mean, there's just not enough known about these diseases. You know, <laughs> The, the research aside, and I, and I get that part, and I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but my thought as you were explaining that is, you know, like as women, yeah, we might have cramping, mm -hmm. but when you're doubled up, curled up in the fetal position, bleeding profusely and vomiting, mm -hmm. doctors need to say, this is not normal. And especially yeah. it's not like you have this one month and you go in. This yeah. is over a long period of time. Like refer you on to a specialist, do yeah. more research, do the digging yourself. Like the, for the doctors just sort of say, no, you've just got bad, bad periods. Well, 
And, and I asked, you know, I, I would say, is there a specialist you can refer me to? Is there a test you can do? And their solution at the time, and this isn't even in the, you know, it's, this isn't a long time ago. I think I finally got diagnosed in either, it was either 2018 or 2019. So we're in 2023 recording. So it's not that long ago that this happened. And, um, you know, the, one of the final doctors, she said to me, I said, is there anything you can do for me? Like, there's still nothing. And she would just say, no, take the tramadol, take this tramadol, which is prescribed drug for pain. Now, tramadol doesn't work for my body either. So tramadol would also make me vomit. And so it was at that point where I was just like, what can I do for this pain? I mean, the pain is horrendous. And I was living in Massachusetts. And so we had medical marijuana. So I got my medical marijuana card because it was the only thing that I could do to manage the pain. But even at that point, so that was probably, let's see, I think that was like October, 2018. And we were going to go through another round of IVF. And it just, I happened to talk to a friend who said, wait, your doctor thinks you have this thing. Why are you going to go through another IVF transfer? And I think I know a specialist in town that you can see. It wasn't even my doctor who referred me. It was a friend that referred me to this specialist. So that was the specialist who diagnosed me and said, yeah, no, you're never going to be able to carry a baby to full term. But that doctor still, she was saying, no, there's no specialist. There's nothing. Just deal with it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so frustrating. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of stuff here. Are you pain-free now? Well, I don't have a uterus anymore. So I don't have a uterus, fallopian tubes, or my cervix. And I still have my ovaries. Yeah. You know, it's wild. But, you know, even my surgeon here, I live in uh, San Diego, California now. And my surgeon here who did my surgery, who she's an amazing surgeon. You know, my hysterectomy was with the robot. And I'll share something else with you, which also infuriated me. But she was like, I promise you, when you get your uterus out, you're going to be so happy. Now, yes, true in that I no longer live with chronic pain. You know, you people who live with chronic pain, you don't even recognize the toll it takes on your body, your personality. You know, I felt like I was living outside of my body for many, many years because I just when you're living like that, you're kind of you're at this level of you're just dealing with all the pain. And then once it goes away, you're like, whoa, how was I how was I functioning every single day? So true in that I was very happy to have that piece of my anatomy removed, which was causing me so much pain. The thing that people don't talk about is the emotional pain of having something removed, which is uh, part of your identity as a woman and part of the thing that can help you to procreate should you wish to do that. So in my case, um, I was never able to have children. Obviously, I don't have a uterus now. Can't carry a baby because I don't have a uterus. So there's some other things that happen along with that that people just don't talk about. So there's that piece of it. And then at my two-week post-op, after the hysterectomy, my ex said to the surgeon, you know, why wasn't Amanda ever diagnosed? We went through all these rounds of IVF. Um, you know, anybody who's gone through IVF or if you have, you know, a, a daughter or a sister or a friend who's gone through it, you know that we're getting constantly tested, meaning we have ultrasounds, we have MRIs, we have blood work, constant, constant, constant. And when my ex asked the surgeon that question, she laughed. And she said it was in the doctors, the IVF doctors, best interest not to diagnose Amanda because you were a money-making machine for them. 
So that's what infuriated me. And that's when I started to tell my story because I thought, well, hang on here. I'm an educated white woman and I've been, you know, sounding like the siren call for years to say there's something wrong with my body and they've been dismissing me. What the heck is everybody else experiencing? And so that's when I started to do a little bit of digging, but it really, you know, it really opened my eyes to kind of the money-making machine of IVF here in the United States. And there's not a lot of regulation, right? So they can kind of do each clinic. There's, 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 there aren't protocols that are standard for these clinics. So, you know, I went, I don't even know how many rounds we went through, probably eight, um, which is significant. And if you can just imagine every time that I'm injecting myself with those drugs and not having this diagnosis yet, it's, you know, making my adenomyosis worse and worse and worse. So by the time they actually removed my uterus, the surgeon, my uterus was five times the size of a normal woman's. So, um, normally with a hysterectomy, you take the uterus out vaginally. In my case, they took it out through my belly button. And I guess some other women probably experience that too. So five times the size of a normal woman's. And when she went in there to take my uterus out, my adeno was growing around my ureters and growing around other parts of my body. And I had stage four endometriosis scarring throughout a lot of my body. And it can be very, very dangerous for this these diseases not to be diagnosed because both adenomyosis and endometriosis can grow into other organs or they can fuse um, certain parts of your body to other parts of your body. And that's when other surgeons have to get involved. So, you know, going in to take my uterus out, my surgeon didn't know what she, you know, what she was going to encounter. Luckily, my surgery went off without a hitch and now I'm pain-free. But, you know, that's to say there's other uh, emotional things that you go through that I think we don't talk about enough when women have to have these major surgeries and have to have these body parts removed. If I could summarize really quickly what you've just said is that money is more important potentially <laughs> than your life. For sure. I mean, that was, that was evident. You know, a couple of things happened to me when I was going through IVF, my ovary, one of my ovaries flipped at one point. So flipped itself over, which <laughs> I don't wish that on anybody either. Extremely painful. So I got rushed to the emergency room and had it not righted itself, it, it flipped itself back over, but had it not done that, they would have had to remove it immediately. So I think that also should have been an indicator at that point to the doctors and the surgeons, like, wait a second, we shouldn't put this woman through more treatment. It's already causing and wreaking havoc on her body. And I, we just don't know enough about what these drugs do either, right? These hormones that we're putting into our system. For me, they just were a nightmare. And then, you know, moving forward, the amount of times, like I said, that I had ultrasounds where my surgeon said, there's no way they couldn't have seen your adenomyosis. Absolutely no way because it was everywhere. So that in and of itself is pretty egregious. And as you mentioned, you know, what do we care about? Do we care about human beings? And, you know, by the time I got to the point where we had moved from Boston to San Diego, my symptoms were presenting themselves again. So in between Boston and San Diego, my doctor in, in uh, Boston had given me an uh, IUD to be able to stop the symptoms. And so it's a stopgap, right? It's not the, it's not a solution. So I had that. 
And then when I moved to San Diego, kind of spring of, um, I guess that was 2021. I'm like, my symptoms are coming back. I'm bleeding every day. I'm getting cramping. This shouldn't be happening because I shouldn't be getting a period. And then I found my surgeon out here in San Diego. And, um, she was like, uh, your adenomyosis is growing everywhere. Now that's not what the IUD isn't working. And I'm fearful for you because of how bad your adeno is. Like we need your uterus to come out stat. Like it's going to cut if it, if it ruptures, you could die. So yeah, I mean, I think there's some checks that have to be put into place for doctors in specifically, uh, for women who are going through fertility treatment to say, is this the safest thing for this human being? I just realized as you were talking that I'm gripping my desk tighter and tighter. <laughs> I'm so angry for you and women like you. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about uh, fertility, IVF and stuff. We will come back to it. I'm going to back out a little bit more generally, sure. women's health more generally. What do women need to be thinking about when it comes to their own health, their fertility, but their, their general well-being? I think number one, we generally know when something isn't right. You know, most women that I know are pretty in tune with uh, their bodies, pretty in tune with their intuition, pretty in tune with their guts. And, you know, it's unacceptable anymore for a doctor not to give you the time and the space to have a conversation. If you go to a doctor's office and they're laughing at you, they're dismissing you, you can use your voice to advocate for yourself. You can find a new doctor. Not everyone. You know, I, I say this from a place of privilege, right? Because here in the United States, you know, we have this crazy insurance system and it is not set up to help people. It's not set up to support people. And um, it's set up, you know, I always say, follow the money. Who's making money? And, you know, but part of it is you can demand better treatment. In my case with my surgeon, um, her office her front office staff was being rude to me and I got on the phone with her and I said, you and I need to have a conversation. And there's another backstory to that. But, you know, part of it is using your voice. You can also bring somebody into your doctor's appointments that can be the advocate for you and take notes. I'm not a trained doctor. I was not trained in the medical field. And hearing certain things from doctors, they use a lot of jargon. They use a lot of language that the layperson doesn't understand you know, we're not trained in that. And so part of it is also to say, hang on, I need you to clarify these things. I also share with women in regards to their healthcare, if you are going through something and it's daunting, it's scary, take a journal, take some notes, write down questions you have for your practitioner before you go and see them and have somebody with you. But, you know, I think overall, when we use our voices to stand up for, no, I know this is my body. I know something's wrong. I want a different test. Outcomes are generally better. Also, the more that we use our voices, and again, I say this from a place of privilege, but the more that we use our voices, the more change is going to occur. Everybody knows I come with notes. <laughs> and now I'm just <laughs> sort of scrolling down because I'm in Canada. There's a real shortage of doctors in Canada. I don't know about the U.S., so there is that real feeling of, I, at least I've got a doctor. Yeah. You know, and, and that has to be scary. Uh, the other part of my notes is we women know our bodies. We've been living in them for decades. Yes. So really, really good advice there to, to take someone. And I, I think personally, I probably wouldn't have thought about it, taking an advocate or somebody to take notes. And Yeah. I mean, take somebody you trust. 
you know, I feel like, especially if you're navigating something that's a diagnosis, a prognosis, it can be daunting. It can be scary. And, you know, doctors throw a lot at you. And here in America, they have seven minutes to see you seven minutes and they're giving you a prognosis or they're telling you, okay, you, you know, your uterus is so big. We need to take it out immediately. You need to be the next person we put onto, you know, our, our surgery roster. And it's like, whoa, what? Um, hang on. Uh, so what am I supposed to be doing here? And, you know, I think having somebody in there who can be your note taker, who can listen, who can summarize, who can ask the tough questions of the doctor is really important here in the United States. And I don't know about Canada, but um, certain hospital systems also have health advocates on site. So you can request somebody to be there for you and to help you. You know, people don't think that they can bring somebody into their doctor's appointments. You absolutely can. You can also, in my case, and this is probably another story, but I have uh, two small aneurysms at the base of my brain. And so when you go through a hysterectomy, your head is below your heart, which means that, you know, you're of an increased risk of uh, risk of having a stroke on the table or bleeding out or something else happening. And I, with my ex-husband, I wasn't convinced that if a life or death situation came to be, meaning uh, if I had had a stroke, thank God I didn't, but if I had had a stroke on the table, and they needed to operate on my brain and they had to call him. And this was my um, surgery was during still during the height of COVID. So he wasn't allowed at the hospital. Right. Um, I had to take myself into my own surgery. You know, had he had to make a decision, I wasn't convinced he'd be able to do it under pressure. This is probably also why we're divorced. But <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually named somebody else as my health proxy. And I named a friend who I knew would be able to make tough decisions under pressure. And, you know, I had that conversation with my then husband saying, hey, I've named Gina. So Gina's going to be on speed dial in case something happens while I'm on that operating table. That's another decision you can make. It's within your rights to make the decision of who's going to make those decisions for you uh, should they need to be made while you're if you happen to be in surgery. But, you know, we do have options. And I think because the medical system is so complicated and these doctors are only seeing us for a few minutes every time we're in their offices, we don't know that we can make some choices that are better for us. Yeah, I, I have people who say, I had to wait half an hour to see my doctor. And I, I like putting it just back out there like, well, maybe they're not going to rush you through that seven minutes. Maybe they're giving yeah. everybody 10, 12, 15 minutes. And so by the time they get to you in the afternoon, yeah, they are backed up. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my surgeon definitely takes more time and I would go in with a litany of questions. You know, I just wanted to be, there's, especially, you know, with a hysterectomy, there's a lot of really old fashioned practices out there in terms of what you need to to do. And I was like, okay, so I'm reading or one of my friends who just had a hysterectomy told me that her doctor told her to drink so many gallons of Gatorade. And my doctor was like, what? No, that's like really old fashioned. Do not put that in your body. We want clear liquids. We want, you know, whatever. But, you know, I had a litany of questions for her. And there were a couple of times where her nurse or assistant would come in and try to pull her out of the room. And I'd look at them and then go, nope, I'm not done. I have five more questions here and I'm going through a major surgery. And so I want to know what I need to be prepared for. And so, sorry, but like other patients, I apologize too, but you're going to have to wait because my health is just as important as everybody else's. I did exactly that advocating for one of my kids in high school. 
Um, <laughs> so we are not, we're not going to go there. Um, okay, I do want to go slightly sideways. Sure. You, t- you talk about health equity. Yeah. Can you explain that and then expand on that, please? Sure. So, you know, health equity is understanding that we all come to the table with different circumstances. We're not a monolith. And so we can't all be treated the exact same, but we should be able to have some care that is provided to us in a more equal way, so to speak. So, you know, right now, the way we think about healthcare sometimes is like, well, everybody, you know, should just be able to see a doctor. Well, that's not true. You know, we have um, people in rural America where the closest doctor is 200 miles away. So how are we being, how are we giving them the healthcare we need? You know, it's just a basic understanding that we don't all come to the table with the same set of circumstances. And so when we recognize that, then we're able to give care and the care that is needed to all. Now, I say that because we know we don't have health care for all here in, in America, and I think probably in Canada, too, even though you're more in a socialized system, right? But, you know, we have a serious, serious problem with a- equity and access to a lot of things in America, health care being one of them. Why we don't feel that all human beings should have the right to health care, I have no idea. And it isn't until, you know, somebody has a life-threatening illness or something where they recognize like, oh, I wish I was able to see a doctor. It shouldn't get to that point. You know, we should be able to give um, the healthcare that's needed to all human beings. We should be looking at it with a human-centric approach. We we have socialized healthcare in Canada, but too often it's socialized, I don't care. Yeah. Um, that, right. that really hit home. And just a few years ago, we had an Indigenous woman who actually, with her her uh, smartphone videotaped the mocking and the harassment that the staff gave her, wow. uh, which was a good thing because she died shortly thereafter. Oh man! So and and it's... she, you know, mother of a number of children, and she could have been saved if they paid attention. Yeah. But the fact that she'd been able to videotape that really just blew that wide open. Well, and you know, you think about the maternal death rate in America right now; it's staggering. It's and I can't think of the percentage right now, but it's really focused or really horrible for women of color. And, you know, you even think about probably the most well-known story about somebody almost dying on the table when giving birth, which is Serena Williams. You know, she tells her story when she had her first child about saying, I think something's wrong and and them dismissing her for hours upon hours. And lo and behold, she had, I think it was um, blood clots in her lungs or fluid in her lungs. It was something like that, which almost took her life. Now, she is one of the most well-known women in the world with access to a lot of money and they're still dismissing her. So, you know, this is a real problem when it comes to not believing women in their pain, um, particularly women of color. You know, here in America, we have a terrible history of using black women's bodies for experimentation when it comes to the medical system. I mean, if you go back to uh, when we had, I should say when we had slaves. No, I think there's still some form of modern, there is a form of modern slavery. So, you know, in the history of slaveholding in the South and how um, slaves, female slaves were used for experimentation with their bodies. And it is disgusting and shocking and appalling. And and that carries over to modern day, right? You know, still until fairly recently in the medical system here, physicians, practitioners were being taught that black women didn't feel the same pain as white women. 
<laughs> and so then you think about that and what they're teaching them. So how am I going to, you know, come at or, or treat a patient fairly when I believe that a black woman's pain is not equal to a white woman's pain? It's, you know, we really have to dig into the, how the systems and structures are set up. I think in all countries, when it comes to uh, treating women and then in particular treating women of color. There's, there's two places I want to go here, but first of all, I'm just going to ask more and more, there are women doctors out there. Yes. Are, are they more attentive or can they be dismissive too? Because that might've been the environment they were educated in. Yeah. I mean, they can be dismissive too. The, the last doctor I had before I got my diagnosis or was female. Um, and she was the one who said, no, there's no specialist out here for you. You just have to, you know, take this tramadol and deal with your pain. So, you know, again, we have to think about how they're being educated. Now I say that there are on the flip side, there are amazing doctors out there, but, you know, still in the United States, the, the education doctors get is very minor when it comes to women's health issues, even in, in gynecology. And I think about, you know, going to your gynecologist and the amount of diseases, diagnoses, all of these things that they have to be aware of presenting diseases is more than almost any other doctor in, or any other specialist. So how are they supposed to also be able to navigate all of these things? You know, one of the things that I, I share with folks sometimes is if you know you have, and I'll just use me, adenomyosis, make sure the specialist you're going to is specialized or the doctor you're going to is specialized in that particular thing. Or if you're going through menopause, that particular thing. But back to your question, I am finding more and more, especially as uh, women of color um, are, you know, more are becoming doctors more frequently now, or at least um, being able to practice there's a different lens that they have because they've experienced some of these things. I also, there's some amazing practitioners out there right now who are doing the work to educate doctors, nurses, other practitioners about intersectionality and uh, different cultures and why we can't, you know, especially when it comes to things like pregnancy, why saying, you know, this diet is best for you. Well, have you thought about the culture and have you put the cultural lens on who these people are and why that might not be the thing they're eating or, you know, what their community is sharing with them in terms of what they should be eating to have a healthy pregnancy. So I guess that was a long answer to say, you know, I think things are changing and people are coming at this differently. I also want to acknowledge doctors are under a lot of pressure you know, a lot of pressure. And especially in this system, the system wasn't set up for us, us meaning women and in particular women of color. It also wasn't set up for them. So, you know, if you're a doctor and you really care about your patients and you're being forced to bill every seven minutes, I can't imagine the stress that they're under and how, you know, unfulfilling that must feel to them on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I really appreciate, you know, I'm a little bit of a news junkie, definitely talk radio. And more and more, I am seeing what are, to me, fairly obvious uh, BIPOC names in all fields. And, yes. and I just love that because I really feel it might help to equal the playing field. I agree. And, you know, I was at a conference maybe like a year and a half ago. And there was a black doctor, female who runs an IVF clinic here in America, but she is one of, I believe two 
black women who own IVF clinics in America, in the United States. Now, <laughs> I I say that because I'm like, I, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I honor her for this. This is incredible that she's doing this. And then on the flip side, I'm like, wait a second. If you're a woman of color and are seeking a doctor who understands perhaps your lived experience or part of your lived experience, and there's two in the United States, not to say there aren't other doctors that are IVF doctors, but two who own their own clinics, where do you go? You know, it's, it's, it is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. And we're not giving, you know, we, you have to look back into how, again, our systems and structures are set up to put people through medical school and the enormous expense and everything else. But yeah, you know, there needs to be more representation for sure. And as you mentioned, across all fields. Okay. So we've just talked about BIPOC women. Uh, you also address issues faced by non-binary and gender non-conforming persons. Yes. Both Canada and the U.S. seem to be racing backwards mm -hmm. in their attitudes and support of Oof. gender nonconformists, especially trans. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts there? It's, ugh, I don't even know what to say. It is so ridiculous. You know, we have an unprecedented uh, um, number of bills on the books this year in 2023. And I don't even know what the count is now. I think as of six weeks ago, it was like 96 bills or something. It was unprecedented. And I just, I can't understand it. You know, we are in 2023 and there's gender fluidity. There is different sexual orientation. There is um, different proclivities with your sex, whatever it might be. And, you know, here in America, it's um, politicized. And so the right wing Christian conservatives are going after trans people. Why? You know, like like trans people are not the issue, <laughs> nor is nor. I mean, and also, you know, we know now that um, Roe v. Wade in America was reversed uh, by the Supreme Court. And so we have these states like Florida where they are just trying to strip away every single right uh, women have. And, and, you know, and trans people, you can't even say gay in schools in Florida. You know, how do we create a safe space for uh, children and teenagers and other adults who might um, be trans to be able to transition should they want to, to be able to get gender affirming care if doctors can't even, or, or people in general can't even use certain terminology anymore? It's, it's just, to me, it's disgusting. You know, it goes against every single value that Christians and conservative Christians say they uphold, which is, um, you know, you're supposed to lead loving other human beings and uh, loving difference. And now we're going to go after these people. And it's a, such a small percentage of the population. Why? <laughs> yeah, it boggles my mind and it infuriates me. Um, luckily, I don't live in one of those states. But, you know, we we have to stay vigilant because that's not the thing. You know, I, so I'm going to shift for a second. I think about there's um a mother and her daughter in Nebraska uh, that got put into jail because her mother, I think she was 17 or 18, and um, her mother helped her get access to safe a safe abortion, and they were thrown into jail. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is like Handmaid's Tale type of of stuff that's going on here in the United States, and it's frankly, it's scary. Uh, I'm going to 
mention this, but as I said, Canada is also racing backwards. But um, the Canadian government did recently put out an alert to certain groups saying, really do your research before you go to certain areas of the U.S. I saw that for Florida. Yeah. And, and, you know, the ACLU also did that for um, people of color going to Florida. So that's the first time in, I don't know, however many years they've issued that warning. Isn't that frightening when you think about, you know, (laughs) you think about the United States in general of, I guess, you know, other countries, maybe in the past looking up to the United States or us being this super wealthy nation where we were supposedly welcoming welcome, you know, we were welcoming immigrants and people of color and difference. And now there's warnings from other governments to say, don't travel to that country. It, it's, it's wild to think about. I think my other thought in that arena is that, you know, if, if you're gay, <laughs> that's got to do with your sex life. And it is nobody's business except yeah. yours, you know, and, and for, for it to be politicized, it's, uh, you know, it's bad enough that your neighbor might have an opinion, but the government and the church. Stay out of it. Yeah. Stay yeah. out. I mean, I always say, not that I have a uterus anymore, but I'm like, stay out of my uterus, especially the people who are making decisions. I mean, look at the Supreme Court of the United States. Most of them are older white men. Um, so there's that piece. And then, you know, you look at like the governors who are making decisions like Ron DeSantis in Florida. And it's like, oh, you know, what what do these, you know, white men have to do with anything pertaining to my body? And, you know, I say to people all the time, it's it's not even that they want to come after the abortion. Right. That's not the thing. It's just the thing they're hanging their hat on. It's the it's the siren call that they can throw out to their party. Um they're coming after women in general and then trans and then gay people as well. But they're coming after women because we don't have the same status here. We are not treated equal. We are not a country built anymore built on, you know, the values that we state in our constitution. Women are second class citizens, period, end of story. So anything they can do to make sure that we stay in our place and that they can continue to control us and wield the power, they're going to do. So one of the first ways they can do that is to tell us that we don't have autonomy over our bodies. It's turning into an angry podcast. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so angry about what's happening here. You know, it's, I mean, (laughs) you know, I live, I live in California, so we're a pretty liberal state, right? We're run by Democrats. Um, We, our governor put a lot of things in place when Roe v. Wade was overturned to help bordering states to uh, get access to safe and uh, and healthy abortions here in California. Um, But it's not enough because you know, you think about, and I'll just use abortion as an issue. There's a multitude of reasons why women choose to have an abortion. It's not that we're killing babies, right? It's, that's not the case. Um, there's a multitude of reasons why they might choose to, but you know, these women that are, say they're in Arizona and they're a bordering state to California or, you know, whatever, even putting the funds in place, if they're working, if they already have two children at home, an abusive partner working three jobs to try to make ends meet. How are they going to get across the state border to be able to get access to what they need for their own health care? 
They can't. So now we're putting them in a, in a position where either they lose a job, their spouse gets mad at them. You know, I mean, we're putting women in horrible, horrible positions right now. And I work my day job, you know, I, I consult in corporate and, you know, I think about it, it, these issues have to, we have to start talking about them because health equity or access to healthcare also comes, you know, these, these women that are being presented with these awful choices there's a level of trauma that now women are experiencing trauma and stress. We already have enough trauma and stress going on in the world with this global pandemic. We all went through everything else. And then now you're forcing these women into these horrible, horrible positions to choose, you know, whether or not they're going to feed the current children they have, or, you know, be able to try to get access to not have another child. And then the level of stress and trauma we're putting them through, not to mention, I mean, <laughs> the the party that is coming after women and women's bodies, we don't care about children when they're born here. You know, there's nothing in place. There are no systems in place to say, oh, you're pregnant. Let's let's get you some great health care while you're pregnant. Okay. Number one. Let's make sure that you're getting your checkups and that you can afford to get checkups while you're pregnant. Okay, then the baby's born. Guess what? We have a system in place to help you get childcare and food and diapers and formula. We don't have any of that. We don't have um, paid maternity leave or paternity leave in the United States. I mean, look at other countries and you look at like places like Sweden or Norway, some of the, the Nordic countries and what they actually have in place to support children when they're born and the mothers when they're born is amazing. And you also look at like how they've been able to manage. And then you look at, oh, how many people are educated in those countries? Because the foundation upon which they started their lives, these children started their lives, they had access to food. They had access to resources. We have none of that. And so the party that is coming after women's bodies, oh, we care about children. We care about the fetus. No, you don't. You absolutely do not. If you did, we wouldn't be putting kids in cages when they're immigrants. We would be we would be providing uh, child care and health care to women. We would be have um, you know access to kindergarten, to healthy meals, and all of those things are being stripped away, and none of it's in place. Nice long pregnant <laughs> pause. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 ridiculous when we say we're a country built on family values. No, we aren't. Absolutely not. Yeah, I, I have so many theories. <laughs> when I rule the world, things will be when, different. When, well, and and you know, here's the thing: if people are listening to this podcast and are in the United States of America, if every single eligible female voted in America, we could change the system. End of story. There you go. End of story. <laughs> okay. We have been all over the map today. <laughs> and thank you for that. Um, <laughs> is there anything we haven't talked about that you want women, and especially mid-age women, this is the Boomer Woman's podcast, yeah. to think about as they navigate these decades? As we get older, we have greater chances of having a health issue. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, number one, uh, since, you know, you're talking about middle-aged women, have these conversations with your daughters, your sisters, your grandchildren, especially, you know, as certain rights are being stripped away. And, you know, even as you mentioned in Canada with trans people, have these 
this open dialogue. We need to continue the conversation. Women need to continue to be educated about their bodies, about the reproductive system, about their health and their health care. Continue to have these conversations. Don't let these things be taboo. You know, I know when I was growing up, we barely talked about periods. And so, you know, just those basic things, it's normal. And to, if you have a uterus, to go through a cycle for most of us. And so even menopause, you know, we didn't really talk about menopause until recently. And, and even so it's still not so mainstream. So have these conversations and make sure that you have access to resources that are giving you the correct information. Um, the second thing is, you know, each of us does have a voice. And so whether you use that in a small way, maybe just having these conversations, um, or, you know, uh, talking to your doctor about what you need and the information you need, or you use it in a big way to advocate for change, it's important regardless of your age. And so continue to use your voice. And I think those would be probably my, my two main things. I will add too, that it was my mother's generation and uh, to a large extent mine, where doctors and teachers were so revered that you wouldn't dare argue with them or right. question their their decisions. You know, it's, uh, yeah. It's... Well, and now it's even more important. I mean, not to say that you're going to be Dr. Google, but, you know, um, and, you know, doctors will kind of flippantly say sometimes, oh, what did you get? Did you find that on Google? Well, yeah, maybe I did. But here are my symptoms. And it's not to say that you're going to make your own diagnosis or prognosis, but sometimes being armed with the information, especially if you have seven minutes to see a doctor, really goes a long way to do some of your own research or, and I don't want people to necessarily go down the rabbit holes of, you know, the forums that are out there. I know when I was um, going through my adeno and, and the hysterectomy, I kind of went down this rabbit hole of like all these Facebook forums of like, oh, this is what's going to happen. I mean, arm yourself with information and make sure you know the source, but definitely coming in, having done your research, I think is important in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, before we close, I want to lighten up a little bit. Rumor has it you have traveled to over 50 countries. Like 50 countries, how did that happen? And of course, my obvious next question is, do you have any favorites? Yes, Agnes, it's true. I have been to, I believe, over 50 countries. I haven't done a count in a little while. I need to because I recently got back from five weeks in Europe and I got to go to two places that I'd never been before. So I went to Montenegro and I went to Albania. So two countries I hadn't been to before. And I really need to go back and look at the globe or look at a map and start to count again and to see where I actually am. So how did it happen? You know, um, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and so I grew up surrounded by people who didn't really travel a lot. My parents, when I was growing up, didn't even have passports. It happened that when I was in high school, my French club that I belonged to was taking a trip over to Europe. You know, one of those typical American style trips where you're in a bus, uh, you go to, I don't know, however many umpteen cities in the space of three weeks. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go. And we did Italy, we did some of Germany, we did England and France. And I got to Paris and I absolutely fell in love with the city. I was like, you know what, at some point in time, I'm going to live here. This place is magic. And so I actually did. I studied there when I was 19, but 
from a very young age growing up in Iowa, I recognized that I was quite different from my peers and the people that I was surrounded by. And I just had a really, really deep wanderlust. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to experience other cultures. I wanted to taste the food. And, you know, even going back to Paris, when I was there, there was something in me that was like, whoa, I was born in the wrong country. I should be, you know, inside. I'm a little French girl, but (laughs) not the case since I am American. And so some of my favorites as of late, as I mentioned, I recently was in Europe for five weeks. So one place that sticks out to me that I had never been, and I had been to Greece, but I'd never been to Athens. I just fell in love with Athens. I don't know why. I mean, I do. I feel like the city itself is gritty. It's charming. It There are some rough edges to it. It's it's real. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just spectacular. So that's one of my favorites. I also really, really, really love Japan. It's, you know, as people say, it's kind of like um, landing on Mars or something. It's it's very, very different to being in the Western world or being in the United States. Everything is, you know, it's just like an overload of senses. And the food there is so good and so divine. I'm a big foodie and a big wino. I, I worked in the wine industry for many years and it's a passion of mine. And so I tend to go to places where the food and the wine are good or in Japan's case, the food and the sake. So Athens sticks out. Japan sticks out. I love Southeast Asia. You know, I just think the people there are so kind and so friendly. Last October, I did a trip to Kuala Lumpur, Singapore and Cambodia. And, you know, there are just so much beauty in all of those places And then I would say one of the other places, if we go to the other side of the world or our side of the world, one of the places that really stands out to me is Colombia. I absolutely love Colombia, not only Bogota and the Coffee Triangle, but also Cartagena. It was just also a magical place with friendly people, amazing food, a vibrancy to it. I think the theme for me about the places that I fall in love with now, Paris being the first city that I fell in love with when I was 16, but the places that I fall in love with have a real pulse to them and a very discernible and recognizable culture. So those would be three of my favorites. It's so hard to pick. And I think every time I travel, I find something new about a new place, a new culture, the people, the threads that bind people, the connectivity. And so I just, I love travel. It's in my veins. Um, If I could be a little nomad for the next couple of years, I probably would. I'd probably go live in quite a few different countries. Oh, my goodness. Okay. How about countries you haven't visited but want to? So if there's countries that I haven't visited yet that are on my must-go-to list, oh, that's so hard. Oh, you know, I really want to see Turkey. I've never been to Istanbul, and I'd like to, you know, be on both sides of the river, the Asian side and the European side. I've heard such amazing things about it. I also haven't done a ton of Africa. I've been to two countries in Africa. I would like to see uh, Kenya and Mozambique, and I would like to see Victoria Falls. I also really, really want to go to Chile and wine country there. So those are some places on my must-go-to list. I am open to other suggestions from anybody else. Oh, and I totally missed two major ones. I have friends both in Australia and New Zealand, and I still have never been And so those are two places that I really, really want to visit and then are very high in my list. Again, you know, one of the things that 
I really love to do is to explore culture. And so anytime I can be somewhere to really ensconce myself in kind of the fabric of society and to understand more about the people through their day-to-day experiences, through their food, through um, their rituals and through how they behave, it makes me so happy. And I feel like when we do that, when we're able to travel and get a sense of one another, you know, humanity connects even in a greater way. So that is a little bit more about me. Stay tuned. You know, I will continue my travels. I also, just as a side note, have a little show that I'm launching about food and wine and highlighting underrepresented wine regions in the world because it's my passion. And so uh, that's on my Vino Karma uh, YouTube channel or be launching soon. And at the moment, uh, but well, actually, should I say the working title? I'm not sure I'm going to say the working title, but you can find it at Vino Karma. But uh, that's, yeah, a little bit more about me. Uh, any last thoughts going back to healthcare, health equity? I mean, you know, we all deserve to be heard. So just don't let yourself be dismissed anywhere in life. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Good segue for my next uh, episode. <laughs> um, where do we find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, that whole thing. Uh, you can find me at period to pause.com. So, you know, period to menopause. It's also a double entendre of sometimes we just need, need to take a moment in life to pause on Instagram and Facebook, also at period to pause. And then my podcast is the same name. So you can find me on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. You just knocked off my three questions <laughs> social <laughs> and the podcast. Um, and I will add too that everything is yeah available at period. To, sorry, I have another monitor over here in case you're wondering why I suddenly went like that. But everything's on your period to pause.com. Yeah. And we're making some changes right now too. Um, we're updating some things, offering some more resources for women and gender nonconforming folks. So stay tuned. But uh, it should be out in the next couple of weeks. Great. Great. Your website link is in the show notes, and all the links will be on your page at our website. Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's Podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. I say that every episode. It doesn't happen. (laughs) Share this episode. Share it with the groups of women you talk openly with, your book club, your wine tasting group, your sisters, and as you, Amanda, just pointed out, your daughters and granddaughters, because we need to be talking openly with them. It's probably safe to say we all know someone who has been dismissed by a medical professional, air quotes, and we need open, frank conversation and action, action before our grandchildren are old enough to receive the same treatment. Check out Amanda's podcast. I browse through there and there are a myriad of really important topics discussed. Amanda Layden, thank you for being my guest today, sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of the week.